Welcome back to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to some of the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this edition, I'm speaking to David Whitkin, the Portfolio Manager of Beryl Capital Management. Beryl is a manager that focuses on merger and arbitrage strategy, a strategy that's very uncorrelated to markets. David's background includes graduating from Harvard University in 2001 as magna cum laude, which is with honours, as well as working experience in mergers and acquisitions at Citigroup and also Bear Stearns. Interesting to note that David's thesis at Harvard was in merger and acquisition. Uh, The strategy that he manages and has run since 2011 has returned more than 25% per annum. I think you'll enjoy this podcast and insights from David where he explains the strategies that he pursues uh, and how he goes about that business. Hope you enjoy and please remember to provide your feedback. It's really appreciated. David, thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Good to be here. David, if we could perhaps kick off with you giving us a little bit of a summary of your background and an introduction to the strategy that you're now managing. Sure. Um, So the strategy I'm managing is merger arbitrage. It's something I've been doing for about 20 years. My background is um, I was an undergrad at Harvard University uh, and I knew in in the late 90s and I knew that I wanted to, to go work on Wall Street. I had always been interested in trading uh, from when I was a teenager, really. And I met the head of Bear Stearns' merger arb desk when he came to speak on campus. And before that night, I had no idea what merger arb was, but um, he explained that you're dealing with these stories that are on the front page of the Wall Street Journal every day. They are big takeovers, hostile takeovers. Um, important regulatory decisions. And what I loved about it is that, you know, like any arbitrage, you know what your profit is if you're right. And you know, maybe I should just explain to your listeners um, a simple example. Why don't we use the Amazon Whole Foods acquisition, which took place in the U.S. last summer. Um, I'm, I believe that deal was for $40 a whole per Whole Foods share. So before the takeover was announced, Whole Foods was just trading like a regular stock um, in the high 20s. And then one morning, they, they announced a press release that they're getting acquired by Amazon for 40. What happens is the stock shoots up uh, almost immediately to somewhere close to the deal price. So in this case, it went from the, the high 20s up to 39.50. And the reason it doesn't go right to 40 is is the acquisition does not close on the day it's announced. It has to get regulatory approval, shareholder approval, uh, which can take anywhere from two months to two years. And, and in that time, there's a risk that the deal will not close. Um, and so what arbitrageurs like me do is we take a look at the spread which is was in the, in that case you have forty dollars minus thirty nine fifty or fifty cents. We say how quickly can we make that fifty cents, and is it how likely are we to get it? Um, and what's the risk that the deal breaks and the stock goes down to the 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 twenties again? And I I do this time after time after time. There are about a hundred and fifty live mergers that I'm looking at right now. 
that's that's a fairly normal number for my career. Um, so you know, sorry to, to digress into that explanation, but that's what Merger Arb is. So after I graduated, I I went to work full time at Bear Stearns. Um, was on Wall Street for about ten years, and then in 2009, um, I went out on my own and started trading for for friends and family um, and my own capital and was able to build up a very good track record over the course of the next five to six years and and then progressively began um, looking for outside investors beyond just friends and family. And and so that's how Barrel came about. Great. Thanks for that introduction, Dave. It's really helpful. Um, Perhaps you can Tell, tell, elaborate a few things on that. Um, firstly, when you talk about that example and working out if you're going to make that 50 cents on that that Amazon deal, and if you're looking at 150 of these, how often are you right in being able to make that 50 cents? Um, well, let me start out by saying that about 95% of all deals close. So if you were to do a systematic strategy, just investing in every definitive merger that was announced, you'd probably be right 95% of the time. Um, my batting average has been in the 90s, you know, in uh, the high 90s. And, and that's not to say that, you know, I do think I have skills at, at, at picking the right deals, but some nothing goes into my portfolio unless I'm already fairly sure that I've analyzed the risks to these deals, whether they are regulatory, you know, are the company's competitors and might their deal get blocked by the antitrust regulator? Is it financing? Does the acquirer have the capital or uh, the committed financing to go through with the acquisition? So, you know, typically, in order to be good at this business, you you have to be right, you know, in the 90% and, and higher range. Okay. And if you are good in this area and you've been on it operating since 2009, uh, your, your strategy, what sort of returns is it realistic for an investor in this space to expect? Typically, merger arb has been a very steady five to ten percent low volatility strategy it's one mm-hmm. of the oldest strategies uh in in hedge funds or or on on wall street it's been around for 40 or 50 years um my track record fortunately has been better than that you know i've compounded at, at about 25 percent uh, since I started Barrel back in, in 2011. Uh, mm-hmm. The reason for that is when I was just managing a small amount of capital at the beginning, I couldn't get away with making 5 to 10% and and afford to keep the lights on and, and earn the income that I wanted to, to generate. And so mm-hmm. I had to take a more concentrated portfolio than you would see from a typical merger arbitrageur. Um, merger arb very rarely loses money. 
um, mm -hmm. because most deals close and, and, and ARBs are known to be good risk managers. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I've been very lucky to, to have outperformed uh, in, in the way that I have and we're, we're trying to you know, keep that track record alive every single day. So you're, you've been outperforming your peers by about two and a half times, David. Does that mean that you're taking on roughly two and a half times more risk than they are? Um, I mean, that, that's a simplistic way to view it. I, I would say that on a, I don't use more leverage than an average arbitrageur. I am more concentrated. So whereas for you know when i started at at bear stearns the maximum position size that they would allow their pms to take in any single transaction was 10% of the portfolio my maximum position sizes can get to be 20 30% of the portfolio if i have high conviction that the deal will close and if i'm comfortable with the downside so in in that sense my position sizes are larger. Now, if I'm wrong, I will lose two to three times as much as as you know one of my average competitors. Um, fortunately, there there are enough deals where um, I can I can have my pick and be very selective about those positions I I get concentrated in. And mm -hmm. so, as I said, I don't, I don't take a concentrated position unless I've done the research, spoken to the companies, consulted my lawyers on the antitrust risks. Um, and I've certainly been wrong and had deals break in the past, but the loss, you know, the, the losses are contained. You know, my, my biggest loss was 5% um, in the portfolio in, in any one transaction um, my whereas my biggest you know winning position was was about 11 percent and and you know the winners have far outweighed the losses which is you know that, that the, would the, be the key it would be helpful perhaps if you could talk us through uh, as an example and add some color to maybe that example of that biggest loss and then that that biggest gain so we, we get some understanding of the type of metrics and things that you're looking at Okay, um, so the biggest losing position was Time Warner Cable back in 2015. And ironically, this is a deal uh, that closed. Now they were getting, a, this is a US cable company that was being acquired by Charter. Mm -hmm. um, I took the view that Charter and, and Time Warner Cable you know, put, put together would not have a market share that would you know, a, a, attract the scrutiny or, or a negative decision by the U.S. regulators, which in this case would be the Department of Justice and the Federal Communications Commission. Now, when I um, take a concentrated position, what, what determines my sizing is you know, not only the spread that I can make, but how much am I willing to lose when I'm wrong? And I won't take a single position that would lose me more than 10% in the portfolio if I'm wrong on that deal. So back in August of 2015, um, 
the market had turned down based on you know, China had devalued the yuan. You probably remember this. Um, mm -hmm. People were afraid the global economy was slowing, et cetera, et cetera. The S&P was down 4% you know, by, by mid-August. I took the view that a merger of, of two American cable companies was not uh, going to be in any way affected by um, you know, the devaluation of the yuan. And so I took a position size in Time Warner Cable at the, the stock price of 190 that if the deal broke the next day, I would have lost 10%. Like the spread was so attractive, it was 25% annualized. Uh, that I I thought this is my best idea. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take a maximum position size. Mm -hmm. Well, we get to I think it was Monday, August 25th was the day the morning that the Dow opened down a thousand points which doesn't seem unusual now because back in February we had a couple days when the Dow was down over a thousand points and the S&P was down like three four percent in a single day but that morning whether it was a flash crash or something else you know people did not know what was hitting the market at that point and even this spread, which should not have been affected um, you know, in any meaningful way by macro events, the spread widened. And you know, versus a, a downside target of 150, I believe, Time Warner Cable basically opened, started at, at 190 and opened at, in the low 160s. So it didn't reach my downside price. Um, however, I started that day down 6%. And you know, I decided for risk management reasons, you know, because I didn't know if the rest of the day was going to get worse, let me just cut the position and, and exit altogether and, and, and live to fight another day. Um, and so that's how, and, and ironically, fast forward, to April of 2016, the transaction closes. And I, I had eventually gotten back in and, and made back a little, a little bit of money, but that was an important lesson for me. And, and one thing that I've changed in my portfolio management since that incident is I don't take that maximum position size unless we are a month or less from when the deal is supposed to close. And the reason I made that decision was I realized with six or seven months before a deal's you know, closing date, a lot can go wrong in the world you know, to cause a spread to widen, not as much can go right to cause a spread to tighten. Um, and so, so that, that, that is one lesson that I've learned. Um, so basically everything is, it is is uh, calibrated off of of the downside. For my maximum con conviction positions, I am willing to lose 10%. But as I said, biggest loss was was six. A, a typical position, if the deal broke, um, I wouldn't want to be losing more than two percent in in the portfolio. And so, I've so, kept, so, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So so the message I you know, took out of that really and that that loss there is that. 
um, you know, you're susceptible to the market uh, acting irrationally at periods, even though the macro story and the, the fundamentals even don't support that. Perhaps you could elaborate a little bit on the win of 11% that you mentioned before, David. Yeah, well, let me just circle back to, to the point you made. Sure. On, on any given day, spreads are a risk asset. And if we are in a risk off in environment, you know, ARB spreads will widen. If we are in a risk on environment, ARB spreads will tighten. Um, can you just define, yeah. just, David, can you just define spreads for our listeners, please, how we got that right? Uh, the, uh, spreads generally is, are, what's the difference between the deal price and where the target stock is trading? Correct. Um, that's on a day-to-day basis. You know, spreads will bounce around much, uh, you know, on a much less volatile basis than than the market. But you know, mm-hmm. they the, they're not static. Um, so the the biggest winning position where you can make a lot of money in merger arb is in bidding wars. And so my 11% winner was Salix Pharmaceuticals back in 20, I think this was also 2015. Yeah, it was uh, 2015. Uh, it was a bidding war. You back at that, in that period, you know, specialty pharma was attracting a lot of capital. There were a lot of acquisitions and there was a bidding war between Valiant and Endo for this, for this company. One of the great things that I was taught from an, an early age, you know, at, at Bear Stearns was when you're in a bidding war situation, your downside is not the company's fundamental value. So if a stock was trading at 60, then it gets taken out at 100, but then the, you know, someone else comes in and, and bids 102, your your downside is no longer 60, your downside is 100. Because the bad event for you is that no one comes in to top the latest bid, and so you're stopped out at you know, the you know the at the highest at the then highest bid. And if I'm willing to take a large position in something where I'm only going to lose you know two dollars instead of forty two dollars, if the if you know we get bad news, well if the, mm-hmm. if the bidding war keeps on going you can make 30, 40% in that stock. Um, and that's exactly what happened with, with Salix. I had a big position to begin with uh, because there was a positive spread. So I would have made money had there not been a higher bidder. But the bidding just got ratcheted up. And you know, at, at certain points when the stock was trading only a little bit above you know, the then highest bid, uh, I, I added to the position. And typically, there will be two to three bidding wars a year, okay. and yeah. it's you know, one of one of my uh, mandates, you know, to find them, and and when they do come along, kind of max maximize my position sizes. There is a bidding war going on right now in the UK for a media company called Sky. Um, mm-hmm. Where sure, Australians are very familiar with Rupert Murdoch and that, of uh, course, that, those assets. 
of course. Um, so he is bidding against Comcast for the asset, and that should get very, very interesting in the next month or two um, as the, the Fox deal gets its regulatory approval from, from the UK regulator. That will kind of be a signal for Comcast to make its move, and then you know the the price for that asset could get very high, and and uh, we do have a position in that. That's one of, one of the situations where if you're you're wrong, you're not going to lose much, but if you're right, you can you can really uh, hit it big. And and David, how do you think we're positioned given the current macroeconomic environment in terms of the cycle? Um, and you know how that sort of bodes for the merger arbitrage type of strategies that you're running. Um, I will just say I've never seen this many big spreads. Uh, what's interesting is that unlike other parts of the market, there is more inefficiency in large company deals. So you would think that the bigger spreads would be in kind of the smaller transactions that only a certain asset size arbitrageur could play. That's not the case. Um, the bigger deals, so the Time Warner, which is a $70 billion deal, the Sky, which is a 30 billion pound deal, um, those have the biggest spreads because ARBs, are a small enough portion of the market where they don't command enough capital to tighten the spread. And mm -hmm. with interest rates still being low enough to facilitate a lot of M&A, like cash is still cheap and CEOs, if they're not getting the, the earnings growth they need organically, are going to acquire other companies and get synergies in order to grow those earnings. So you have a great combination of, of reasonably low interest rates, an economy that is growing moderately, maybe picking up, maybe not, but all you need is, is moderate growth to have good M&A. And then in the US, we just had tax reform pass, uh, which, made, which made it you know, easier and cheaper for US companies to repatriate a lot of their offshore cash. And, you know, despite their rhetoric, they're not gonna do it to, you know, hire many more people. They're, they're gonna do it to repurchase shares and acquire other companies. And so globally in the first quarter of, of 2018, there was over a trillion dollars of mergers, which is by far a record. Um, and whenever there's a merger, a public company, you know, there's a spread for someone like me to to play, and so the the macro environment is, is quite good. Um, the scenario that's not so good for for arbitrageurs is is a recession because in a recession, the number of deals will slow down. Um, deals still close; there are just fewer of them, so spreads will likely tighten. So that's really, you know, on a macro basis, what what I worry about. But uh, at least my crystal ball, or the the Fed's crystal ball, or, or or you know, commentators that I read, do not are not projecting a recession for for the next couple of years. So I I do expect 
the M&A market to be quite good, and uh, that's usually very good for merger arbitrage. David, one of the things that we're quite attracted to, and I'd, I'd ask you to comment on, is the correlation of this strategy, so how it tends to perform in relation to other assets that people typically have in their portfolio. So they may be a portfolio of you know, S&P type uh, shares. How does this type of strategy tend to correlate or otherwise with the performance of those type of funds? Yeah, I mean, as I said, on, on, a, on a day-to-day basis, um, spreads spreads will you know I'd I'd say the the beta the beta of merger arbitrage is about 0.2 or 0.3. Um, so on a down day, my portfolio will you know will probably be down slightly. But the great thing about mergers is these deals close in a ma- in a matter of months. And so if you look at it on any broader time scale, like weekly or monthly or even yearly, it's an uncorrelated strategy. Um, yeah, no, this so, is one of the things that really attracts us to the asset class and then being able to find a, you know, a great quality manager such as yourself um, is, is really attractive for our clients. But the, the core, you know, we, we get attracted to that, that, that area because of that on correlation. So, David, that, look, that's been very helpful, and I think we've covered a lot of ground there that uh, will give a lot of colour and insight for people. Um, I, I guess the only thing that that's left in my mind is um, not not all that meaningful. But the the name Beryl, where does that come from? I know <laughs> somewhere like it, someone in Australia, I, I immediately think of somebody's auntie or something similar. But is there um, a story behind the name Beryl? Not super glamorous. Uh, when I first moved to Redondo Beach, California, which is where where I am now, we moved to Beryl Street, um, and I was in the market for a name for for my fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. The streets are a lot of streets are named after gemstones here. There's there's Beryl, Diamond, Emerald, Ruby. I looked up what Beryl means, and it stands for clarity and brilliance. Uh, but almost more importantly, it was available as a Delaware or Barrel Capital Management was available as a Delaware LLC. So I I jumped on it right away, and and uh, it's been good luck. So we're we're going to so, keep it. Very good. So it's not someone's auntie. Fantastic. Um, all right, David. Really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you very much, and thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope. Thank you, David. It's my pleasure. Take care. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.